Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And I'm not sure if you know, part of the jobs that I do involve talking to CIOs and CISOs about their lives and the inordinate stress that they're under. Um, If you're not familiar with the term, CIO is Chief Information Officer and Chief Information Security Officer, correct, Omar? That's correct. You got <laughs> and, it. And um, I, at one of the conventions I was speaking at, I met a young man who I was immediately drawn to. Omar Kwaja is a field CISO for Databricks. And after years of working in the trenches of cybersecurity, Omar now helps other CIOs, CISOs, and CDOs find health and wellness. Omar, first of all, please let me know that I pronounced your name correctly. <laughs> you, that was uh, that was perfect. Only, only mom could do better than that. <laughs> I loved meeting you because of your personal story, talking about how you sort of realized that you were one of the people on the edges of burnout. Can you go back a little and tell people about what your life was like and what led you to that decision? Uh, being... A leader is a hard role because you're not just responsible for yourself, you're responsible for people. And uh, being a CISO, you're not just responsible for the people and the program, but you're responsible for the the security and the safety of the entire enterprise, which is a pretty significant uh, responsibility to have. And it sort of, it, um, it weighs on you. It's something that you think about constantly. So even if you're only working 40 or 50 hours a week, even uh, the time that you're not working, you're always thinking about risks and you're thinking about controls and you're thinking about the people who uh, who power that uh, that program. And and for me, I I loved that responsibility. I loved fulfilling it. When I started, I was uh, totally clueless. It probably took me two, three years to even get a good feel for what the role was. And it took me many years to get pretty decent at it. And um, uh, after about nine years, I realized that I think I'm good. And and to me, the equation that I always look at to decide when I'm ready for the next role is a a simple one. I look at how much impact I'm able to make and I look at how much I'm learning. And when it comes to impact, specifically, I look at how much more impact I'm able to make than I was the previous quarter or the previous six months. And then I look at that and then I divide that by the amount of stress. And so if I'm learning more and I'm making great more impact than I was before, and if I have more stress, I have more anxiety, I'm fine with that because it's worth it. I'm getting some outcome. I'm getting some return. I'm delivering some value for the organization that I'm associated with. It all works out well. But if that stress and anxiety is very high and the amount I'm learning isn't increasing at the same rate and the impact I'm making isn't increasing at the same rate, that to me then says, you know what? I might be ready for my next role. And that's an equation that sort of uh, guided my career uh, for for the last um, few decades. And every single time I've run that equation, after about a year and a half, I've ended up changing roles. This Mm -hmm. was the first time in my career I ended up staying in the same role. It has to have become much more complex with the sophistication of hackers, of people who are running really um dangerous malware systems like i i think about even just what we read in the general news about how cybersecurity officers are under attack and 
we we don't often get to hear from the CISOs themselves about what does that mean for you? How has this changed that role? Well, the the, the root cause of the reason that cyber risks are, are increasing is that technology is getting more sophisticated and therefore it's becoming more pervasive and therefore we're becoming more reliant on technology and therefore the impact of when the technology is abused, misused, hacked is way more significant now than it ever has been. And, you know, it used to be that the cost of uh, cyber risk to the global economy was measured in the billions of dollars, and then it became in the hundreds of billions of dollars, and now it's close to about six or seven trillion dollars. Wow. And so, uh, but if it wasn't for the internet in the early days, and then web applications, and then mobile, and then uh, partnering, and broadband, and on and on, and more recently, all the revolutions in data, and AI, and machine learning, with every one of those technological advancements, there's more reason, there's more incentive, there's more motivation to want to use and consume technologies in ways that it's never been used before, as a result of that, we have way more organizational risk, business risk, and individual personal risk that is um, uh, that is uh, embedded within the technology systems that we use. And if ultimately the CISO is the one responsible for protecting it all, what they're protecting, we, we call that the surface area of exposure, that has been increasing quite exponentially for the last 10, 15 years. And there's still one CISO, but what they're responsible for protecting has increased quite exponentially. And the amount of people that they have or budget that they have isn't necessarily keeping up because there's the expectation that, you know, the CISO will figure out how to do all of this more productively. Which is fascinating to me because you see when a company grows, like your team grows, right? Your budget grows. But when I talk to CISOs and CIOs, they often say, no, I have the same team number and I have the same budget that I had yeah. when I started this job 15 years ago, which is just mind boggling to me. How do you get that communication to the C-suite about the true risk that yeah. they're running? And, you know, Sheila, I think part of the answer to that, if I'm if I'm being truly honest, is um, uh, the CISOs are not without culpability in that scenario. And I can, I can tell you this because even my younger self as a new CISO, I was really, really bad at making a case for why I needed more budget and why I needed more resources. And I realized over time that I am the only one that cares to fund the security program and buy security technology. The business cares to protect itself and to prevent the realization of risks that seem unfavorable. And so if I'm not able to convert it into a language that the business cares about, I'm not going to be successful. So uh, when I ran a security program, I talked about four business outcomes. So anytime we did something, it had to be tied to one of these four things, which was namely risk reduction, operational excellence, customer experience, and compliance. And those are four terms that the business absolutely does understand. And so when I would have a budget ask and it was in those terms, I likely would end up getting it. And so you know, at some point, you also have to take into account uh, the needs of the business and have some sensitivity there. So while my level of security risks and the surface area of what I was protecting may be doubling or tripling every year, 
I couldn't ask for my budget to double or triple, mm. but yes, my budget probably did increase by 20, 30% in a, in a typical year. It just wasn't growing at the same rate. So one of the programs that, uh, that I had in my organization to help account for that uh, gap in those two curves was something we called, um, uh, something something that we called the uh, Think Up program. And that was all about how do we do the things that we're doing, the things that we know we need to do to protect the organization, to effectively manage cyber risk. How do we do those with less effort? How do we just become more efficient at them? So that was automation, that was using new tools, that was learning new concepts and frameworks and skills. And it was agile and it was data and AI and it was risk quantification and it was storytelling and it was change management. And those were some of those, what I think of as middleware skills that were absolutely critical to us being able to bend that cost curve of protecting and uh, the organization in a world where a tax service was growing exponentially. You have um, given us just a snippet of the story of you personally, but from talking to most CIOs and CISOs and actually looking at Gartner's um, health and burnout survey that they did, um, more than half of CISOs say that their personal health has suffered because of taking the brunt of this concern. So tell me about your personal story. And now that you're talking to other CIOs and CISOs, what are you hearing from them? about this kind of internal yeah. pressure? You know, um, l- let me maybe share one more thought, Sheila, on um, on uh, on why being a CISO is a very hard job. Sure. And and then I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my my personal story and how I went through it and arrived at my uh, my decision. Yeah. And, and I, I wouldn't have a good answer to this had I not had the opportunity uh, when I, I was uh, asked by our chief operating officer to go run a project for the business for six months. And initially I said, but I'm the CISO. And mm-hmm. she said, yes, but we need someone to help rewrite the strategy for one of our business units. And we want them to become closer and more collaborative with another business unit. And I said, you know, I'm like the cyber guy. And he said, well, we need someone that's going to be, that's well-respected, that's seen as a neutral party, and that's known to each of them because we can't pick someone from these business units, but you're from corporate and you know these parties well, so you're going to run this. And I said, but I'm the cyber guy and I don't really do business strategy. And she said, we think you could do this and you know, we'll give you some help to go run this, uh, run this initiative. And I said, but you know, being a CISO is a full-time job and you're asking me to redo the strategy of this business unit and create alignment at the enterprise level, that kind of sounds like a full-time job. And she said, don't worry about it. Your subordinates will get a stretch opportunity and your boss will get a stretch opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I went to uh, my boss, who is one of the best bosses I've I've ever worked with, Gary Dick, the chief information officer. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, tell me what you want me to do. And it was an odd conversation. So I sat down and I literally wrote down the things that I do. And I said, which of these can I delegate to my manager, my directors, and which of these can I delegate to my boss? And that's what I did. And I said, I can't be left with any more than maybe 15, 20% of my job. So I was left with 20% of my job. And just to make sure I was all in on the new role, because that's the direction I was given, I actually moved offices to a different floor of the building. So if people came to look for me for my old job, they wouldn't even find me. So smart. 
I'm not the CISO anymore. And so I went and did this role for six months, um, dealing with executives, CFO, financials, market strategy, product fit, product roadmap, you know, the entire gamut of what it takes to run a business. And a lot of this was new to me. And when I came back to the CISO role, I realized how hard the CISO role is. And here's why the CISO role is so much harder than that role that I had. In that role, there were many, many right answers. And it was okay to not be 100% right. Like mm -hmm. if this strategy, this product didn't work, this other one would work. If we had a top 10 list of customers and we only got to eight of them, that's okay because another set of customers could have made up for that. If we had this partner and they didn't work well, we could, there's lots and lots of ways of doing it. But in the world of security, what keeps up at, up at night, what made my role super anxiety, uh, driving lots of anxiety was that there was no such thing as 99%, right? If I worried about customer service in my previous role and customer satisfaction, I would say, yeah, if we've got a few people that have had a bad day and they, do, they don't do well serving the customer, that's okay. We can still get a very, very high net promoter score. We can have really, really high customer satisfaction. In the world of security, if we forget to patch one out of the 27,000 systems servers yeah. that we had, we are insecure. There's no, it's pretty binary. You're either secure or you're insecure. And if that one server is used to break in, you don't get to go to anyone and say, but judge. But, 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 we, but we had 98%. Yeah. yeah. But Miss Regulator, we did 99.9% .9 of them. Doesn't that count? No, nope, nobody cares. Yeah. All that matters is you missed one. That's why being a CISO is really, really hard. And the hardest things I would have to say is when my team would come to me with progress updates and I'd say, that's really good. Get better. But what about the last three? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And they'd be like, Omar, but can't you like, we did 3000 of these. What do you mean the last three? I'm like, I just care about the last, I just care about the last one. It's the only one I care about. Nothing else matters. This is so really um, instructive. It's also fascinating to me that I end up hearing from CISOs that they're so worried about all of the other employees they can't control, what their keystrokes are doing, yeah. what they're doing with their laptop or their thing off, off site when they're not secure, you know, like so that it's not just what you're doing, it's what the entire company base is up to as well. So, how did it impact your health to have that much pressure? Um, I, um, First of all, I, I became uh, very, very attuned to the fact that I own a something called a back. And I think some of that was also at the same time that I was hitting uh, hitting my late 30s and early 40s. And a funny story, a few weeks ago, uh, my youngest son turned four years old. The day after he comes up to me and he says, Baba, I feel so old. And I looked at him and I said, you know, you don't even know the fact that you have this thing called a back. That's and right. So you don't even get to say the word old and associate with yourself. So for me, I started having lots of back problems. And I, you know, the doctor said you need to do physical therapy. And um, I would skip most of the physical therapy sessions. And then I got an injury and I was living in Pittsburgh. So I got to shovel snow a lot and I would do it without warming up. It would use my back and my back just got getting worse and worse. And there was a time when I couldn't get out of my car. And I used to think about, you know, those, uh, there was a meme that was going around for a while that said, uh, buy that sports car when you're still young 
And it was a picture of an old man trying to get out of a sports car that was below <laughs> the ground. And I was like, I can strangely I'm, relate. I'm, relate to that. This is this is a problem because I'm still in my 40s. Why can I relate to this? And it was, you know, I, I knew what I needed to do. I needed to strengthen it. I needed to do core exercises. And there's thousands of different options. And I had lots and lots of excuses for why I couldn't do PT and why I was too tired when I came home and why the weekends I couldn't do it. And, yeah. you know, other health issues and even in the family. And I would feel like I wasn't there with my kids. Um, my older daughter, I felt like I had a good relationship with my younger daughter. I would feel like I don't really feel connected to her. And mm. I would try to spend time with her on nights and weekends. But invariably, you know, the phone would come out or my mind would go mm. somewhere else. And I'd need to like scribble down notes. But I wasn't there. I wasn't present. And I was feeling like, you know, that sort of then aligned with my equation. I was like, is this is this really worth it? Um, and and at the same time, what I also started realizing was happening is I uh, started assuming a little bit more of the role of a historian than I liked. Mm. And this is the role that I really, really uh, got agitated by anytime someone would start things like, you know, things aren't going well. Okay, well, let me explain to you why they are this way. And I would be so agitated. I'm like, I don't care why they are this way. We need to focus on making them better. And as I would hear myself once every other week, starting stories as the historian, I said, you know what? I've been here way too long. Ah, it is time to move on and uh, make space for someone else. So it just turned out that between the wellness stuff, between uh, being maybe a little over tenured and having maximized my learning and wanting to spend time with my family, I thought that this is the right time. Um, I find it fascinating that the tenure of a CISO and a CIO is two years because that seems to me to be the worst use of a company's money uh, to train someone, to get someone very good, and then to watch them go. Do you have any suggestions for companies as to how to make the life of a CIO or CISO more tenable so they could improve that length of time? Because your tenure was three times as long as most people yeah. I speak with. Yeah, I, I, I think... You know, there's um, there's opportunities on both sides, Sheila. I think there's opportunities for the organization and the enterprise to do a better job. And I think there's also opportunities for uh, individuals to have a different um, a different approach and mindset. I, I feel uh, extremely fortunate that I got to be in my role as long as I did because I got to continue to build on that uh, year after year and mature a program versus having to reset and then start uh, start over in a new organization, building new relationships and uh, figuring out the culture. Um, I, I think from an organization's perspective, uh, giving the CISO some of the things that I was extremely, extremely fortunate, uh, fortunate to have are important. Um, you know, strong mentors, strong leaders, uh, mm. patience, space to make mistakes. Mm. Uh, like, and, and in some ways, I, I'm not sure that so much of it is specific to cyber as it is to any leader coming into a role that needs to figure things out. I'll give you a great example. And um, uh, this is, again, a testament to, to my, for the for most of my time there, I reported to Gary Dick, the CIO there. Uh, I remember my first year there, I was millions of dollars over budget. I'd never managed a large budget. I'd never managed a million dollar budget. And I was three times over my budget than the highest budget I'd previously managed. 
So that's how bad I was at financial management. Uh. And my boss came, would come to me and he never talked to me about the fact that I was millions of dollars over budget, but he would come to me the moment he found out that there was a low performer in my organization, even if that person was three levels down, he would say, what's your plan, Omar? Every week, what's your plan? What's your plan? Mm -hmm. Like, this is one person out of hundreds on my team and you care about that, but I'm millions of dollars over budget <laughs> and you're not worried about that. I totally understand though. And, what he was trying know, so to that's do. a yeah. supportive boss. So he knows that Omar needs to figure out how to be a good leader and run a good team. Yeah. And you know what? if he's off on the finances, he can figure that out because he has a multi hundred million dollar budget. He can address that. But if Omar can't figure out how to manage his team, nobody else on the planet is going to be able to manage his team for him. That has to be his job. Managing his budget, Gary was probably thinking, you know what, we'll work on that next year, the year after. And, and I'm happy to say it took me about three years, but I would finally balance my budget and it would be down to a 0.1%. Yeah. Thanks to a, a phenomenal chief of staff I had. That's wonderful. I, you know, it, it's funny to me when when I speak to CISOs and CIOs, I, I try not to be able to solve any of these organizational problems, right? Because every organization is going to be different and every every practical uh, problem is going to have such a different solution. So how do you feel like the skill level of CIOs and CISOs is, is on the things they can control? These personal behavior modification things, these the 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 point of view the mindfulness the the rest yeah. the exercise how how well informed do you think most CISOs are around this I think um COVID really really helped because it uh, really magnified and amplified the wellness issues and it forced us to have more empathy for each other and accept the fact that people have lives I think one of the things that helped is that we could physically see that people have other lives because we were all dialing in from different backgrounds versus yeah. when we're in the office, we think all of us are going through the same thing, but that's right. absolutely not true. I may have young kids. I may have older parents. I may have, yeah. you know, leaks in my basement. And when we're working from home, we're sharing a lot more than when we were coming into the office and sort of um, homogenizing our, um, our personal lives. I, I think COVID helped a lot. I, I do think that there's, more room to grow. I think um, as a leader, uh, one of the things I learned, and it took me a while to figure this out, is uh, you know my my instincts were were wrong, and I feel like you know I applied the George Costanza method of leadership, which is just <laughs> do the opposite of whatever I think I should do, and it turned out that worked well. So as a leader, you think you have to project confidence. And that's great when you're being a spokesperson for the enterprise within or outside. That's great. Project confidence. But when you're working with your team, projecting confidence is not how you build a relationship. Projecting confidence just means you're becoming more intimidating and you're distancing yourself from the person. So doing the opposite, which is being willing to share and open up and having that vulnerability and saying, I don't know, I am still figuring it out. I am struggling with this. Yeah. I need help. I am seeking help. Like those are some of the best things that uh, that leaders can do is to be good role models. I, I do think that um, to answer this question, and the previous question, even Sheila, I, I think there are some CISOs, many CISOs grew up in technical roles. Yes. The ones that made it that shift and realized their goal isn't to be the smartest technical security person in the organization. Their goal is to be the best security leader in the organization. Mm. And 
you know, uh, being a leader and being a security person, both are important, but you have the entire team where you can draw from for subject matter expertise on security, but yeah. you're the only leader. And so for years, I did not spend much time learning about security, but what I did spend time learning about is people and learning how to become a better leader and learning how to become a better manager and the difference between the two and figuring out exactly uh, what it meant to drive people change. You talked about earlier, you know, as a CISO, you're not just responsible for what your team does, you're responsible for the actions of every single user in the enterprise, be it an employee or a contractor or a consultant. And so that isn't about security, that isn't about math, that isn't about computer science, that isn't about programming, it's the exact converse of all of that. That is actually about psychology and maybe to right. some extent it's about economics. So becoming a student of psychology and uh, and economics and human, uh, human change, how do you drive changes in people and how you design things that people actually adapt and how they act in predictable ways, those disciplines became vastly more important. And I think the CISOs that make that transition to say they need to be less technologists and ah. more people leaders and people changers and organization influencers, those are the ones that are successful. And it turns out when you do that, you end up focusing on people and you end up building a lot more empathy along the way versus just assuming that uh, people work like technology works. How has your life changed for the better since you made this shift? Yeah, I um, uh, a few um, uh, a few months ago, I was at a session with a group of CISOs. Um, it was actually at uh, Carnegie Mellon University, and uh, someone came in from the business school, and she had just written a book on mindfulness, and she asked everyone to complete the survey, and it was about health and wellness, and. Uh, you ended up uh, filling out the survey and you totaled up your score. And based on that, it told you exactly how you're doing from a wellness perspective. And this was within a couple months of me changing roles. So I decided, because sometimes I like being an overachiever, instead of filling out that survey once, I would fill out that survey twice. I would do it once for the role I was in a few months before oh, wow. and yeah. twice the second time for the role that I am in now. And in one case, I got 18 out of 20, which was for my previous role. And in my new role, I got two out of 20. Wow, incredible. And so, yeah, my wellness is, is way, uh, it's, um, it's better than it was before because I don't have that awesome, awesome responsibility of the entire enterprise uh, resting on, um, on my shoulder. So um, I can be more thoughtful of, you know, I, I still spend a lot of time working. I'm still, that's still something that I'm passionate about. I still care about security. However, in those hours that I'm not working, I can actually turn my mind off and focus on things like um, wellness and health. I, I probably would go to the gym before maybe once or twice a month. And now I go two or three times a week. That's wonderful. Cybersecurity is so often in the news and so many people are having their own stressors around trying to understand how to make their own lives a little bit more secure. There's a lot of insecurity right now in people's yeah. lives because of technology. There really is. I think it took me a while to figure it out. I, I, I often like to say if there's a superlative that I can associate with myself, I'm the CISO that's made more mistakes than any other CISO I know. <laughs> well, no mistake us asking you on. If other CISOs want to reach out to you to find the kind of advice that you've been able to give us here today, how do they find you? 
Uh, they can find me on uh, on LinkedIn. I'm the uh, only, I think, security person with uh, with my name. So I'm always happy to connect with people and uh, learn and share together. And you can also connect through me at Beyond Well Media, where we'll have Omar's profile up for this particular episode and hopefully many, many more. Thank you again, Omar. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Sheila. And thank you for all the good work that you're doing to make the lives of uh, CISOs and CIOs out there a lot better. Bye.